And uh, I'm going to do a, a, just a little bit of a Bible study before I get to my just one major point this morning. In Genesis chapter 15, uh, Abraham had a vision, praise God, and he acted upon the vision. Amen. 15 verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision saying, fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. It's what Abraham saw that established his journey, praise God, and set that journey in motion for all of his lifetime. Amen. And I'm preaching this morning on a journey caused by a vision, praise God. And Abraham said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me? He's seeing a vision of the Lord, seeing I go childish, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold to me, thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. He's looking at God. He's seeing a vision of God. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. God had a vision of of the son that was to be born after God had spoke to him that he was going to make a great nation out of him, but he had to have the vision before he was able to completely pursue his journey. Praise God. It's important for us to understand that many of us are frustrated because we hear the word of God and we act on what we hear, but we're still in essence blind until God appears to us in a vision, praise God. Now, I'm going to say this very kindly if I, if I, if I can, but in the 21st century, we need a fresh vision, and our young men need a vision of what God is going to do in Louisiana. We can't just dream about what the Merle Ewan's done or or what the Tom Fred Tenney's done or or what this one done or what that one done or what the G.A. Mangan's done. We need a fresh vision among our young men and our young women that can see what God's going to do so they can act accordingly. I I want to dispel a myth here, if I may. And uh, I, I hear people all the time uh, talk to me, and, and they say, well, uh, Louisiana and Mississippi and Texas uh, is nothing but a burnover field. I don't believe that one iota. I'm going to tell you what, Louisiana has 5 million people in the state of Louisiana, or close to 5 million, and most of them have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we need is a fresh vision. In the book of Samuel, chapter 3, and the child ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days, and there was no open vision. And it came to pass at that time when Eli was laid down in his place, his eyes began to wax dim, that he could not see, and ere the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was, and Samuel was laid down to sleep, uh, that the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here am I. And he ran unto Eli and said, Here am I. 
for thou callest me. And he said, I call us not, lie down again. And he went and lay down, and the Lord called yet again uh, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli. And he said, Here am I, for thou did call me. And he answered, I call not, uh, my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, neither was the word of the Lord yet revealed unto him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here am I, thou did call me. And Eli perceived that the Lord had called the child. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, it shall be, if he call thee, that thou shalt speak. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth thee. So Samuel went and laid down in his place, and the Lord came and stood and called as other time, Samuel, Samuel, the, uh, Samuel answered, Speak, for thy servant heareth thee. And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel, that with both the ears of every one that heareth shall tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all the things I have spoken concerning his house, which uh, uh, when I began, I will also make an end, for I have told thee that I will judge his house for the iniquity what he knoweth because his sons have made themselves vile and restrained them not and therefore I have sworn and sworn and then verse 15 Samuel lay in the morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord and Samuel feared to show Eli the vision and then Eli called Samuel and said it's our son he answered what is this thing that the Lord has said unto thee you know Samuel uh, as a small child facing a great Eli had to have a vision and the vision of Samuel would cause the world's ears to tingle I'm going to tell you what the days of revival in Louisiana are not over. I'm going to say it again. The days of revival in Louisiana are not over. They're just not over. Amen. We need to get in our mind that there's no, there's no lid that has been put on my jar that says I can go just so high and I can't get any higher than that. Oh, my goodness, I'm going to meddle a while. Amen. You know the story of the fleas in the jar and with the lid on it, and the fleas jump, and they bounce and hit their head on the lid. And after a while, you can take that lid off, and they uh, jump, but they won't ever clear that uh, jar because they bump their head so many times, uh, they can't get any higher. Praise God. I think we got the lid off, but we can't jump higher. And we're not going to jump higher until we see a vision of what God wants to do. I'm not talking about having an ambition or a desire. I'm talking about we need young men to see the vision of God as to what God wants to do in America. Praise God. I hate to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I've got a vision of a revival coming to America. I've got a vision that there's going to come a great awakening in America. Praise God. The days of revival are not over in the United States of America. I don't care if President Obama says we're not a Christian nation. I don't care if the Congress says we can't pray. I believe that there's coming a spiritual Christian awakening in the United States of America. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord 
sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the doors moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, Woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Can I have an amen? amen? And I also heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then Isaiah said, Here am I, send me. Praise God. But he didn't say send me until he saw the vision. If God could take a young man out of Frogmore, Louisiana, between Bushy Bayou and Wildsville, and a, a, a child that was born in absolute poverty and raise him up and, and use him in ways untold, how many more young people are sitting here? All you need is to pray and fast until God gives you a vision. In Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel was a unique figure in the Bible. We, we, we read so much about Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, and we very seldom ever allude to the Ezekiels. But the Bible says Ezekiel, it came to pass in the 30th year, the fourth month, the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river of Chebar, that the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. 30 years, four months, and five days. The captivity is going to last 70 years. So that means there's more time left to spend in captivity than what they've already spent. In other words, he said, we're not even half done yet. And if, if we're hanging our harps upon the willows and we've already quit singing and we're, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land and we've already given up and we still got more than half the time to go, how are we going to survive? And Ezekiel single-handedly did what Daniel could not do. Daniel was a great prophet. I want to diminish nothing from Daniel. Daniel. Daniel stood in the face of the king and went in the lion's den. And you know the story of how he came out of the lion's den. But how do you come out of the lion's den, divinely protected by God, and not cause Israel to go home? How does a Shadrach, a Meshach, and a Bendigo go through a fiery furnace, not get burned and not have the smell of smoke upon them, and come out of the fiery furnace with the fourth man walking with them, and not be able to take the people of God back home again, praise God. And yet Ezekiel, when he saw the vision of the valley of dry bones, he stood up and said, hey, folks, take your harps off the willow. We're going to sing again, brother. Hallelujah. Ezekiel single-handedly kept Israel from becoming a part of Babylon. Can I have an amen? All because by the river of 
Chebar in, a, in the midst of, of, of chains around his ankles. Uh, he had a vision of God. Nobody can keep you from having a vision. The devil can't keep you from having a vision. The devil can't stop you from having a vision. Can I have an amen? Yeah. Forty years ago, a little over 40 years ago, I got the Holy Ghost. <clears throat> 20 minutes later, God called me to preach. And uh, so I started kind of messing around with it. And uh, I got to thinking... Now, we didn't have mega preachers back in those days. And every preacher I knew was poorer than Job's turkey. <laughs> now, I realize our preachers now, they drive Lincoln Continentals and Cadillacs and Escalades and all kinds of pickup trucks and all, and, and they do pretty good now. I understand that now. Hindsight uh, is 2020. It's foresight I have problems with. And uh, I was in college. I was, I was becoming a chemical engineer. And uh, I was trying to get out my way out of poverty. And uh, I got to looking around at all the preachers that I knew. And they weren't doing too good. And I had to make some choices. And it seemed to me like a chemical engineer was going to make just a tad more money than the poor preachers I knew. I'm bringing it, buddy. <laughs> you, you, I, I got to give people's temperature a chance to settle down here. And uh, so uh, I never will forget, I, I came home from college one Saturday, and, and, and Brother Dice, my pastor, uh, he said, if you come home and you bring somebody to church, I'll let you preach. And so I'd, I would make my way home on Fridays, uh, and I'd knock doors all day Saturday, and I'd fill up a car load of kids uh, to bring to church so I'd get to preach. I think that's still a pretty good idea. If you're going to preach, get out there and bring somebody to preach too. I never will forget that the church at Faraday was an old uh, wood frame building with Celotex inside. It was crumbling and, 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 and we was running the aisle one night and, and I was following two ladies that was in front of me and I was trying to pass them, but they were carrying a wide load. And I was going too fast to stop, and I hit that Celotex siding, and my imprint was in, in that siding. And I itched for three months trying to get that junk out of my hair and my skin. And there was a soybean field right next to the church, and in the, in the fall, they would, they would cut the soybeans, they would turn coal, and every rat in the field joined the church. And... And they didn't, they didn't have enough money to fix the plumbing, and, and the, 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 the valve under the sink leaked, it dripped. And they put a, 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 a three-pound coffee can under the drip rather than fix the sink. And, and somebody had the bright idea of putting out decon, rat poison. 
and the rats would eat the decon, climb up on the can, drink the water, and, and when a rat eats decon and drinks water, he's dead. And he would go in the catacombs of the walls and die. And when a rat dies in the middle of the wall, it's a stink going on. Y'all get the picture? And so I went to church early to pray. And I used my screwdriver to unlock the church door because I didn't qualify to have a key. It's bad when you got to break in the house of God to pray. And when I opened the door, it was hot. And all of a sudden, I smelled every dead rat that ever died. And I got in my car, and I made my little rounds, and I brought about six or seven uh, 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 people to church with me that night. And uh, most of them are college kids and, and, and young adults and and uh, I, I had to think of something, and I said, hey, I said, do you know how to tell the true church from the false church? They said, no, how? I said, there's always a stink around the true house of God. I said, let me give you book, chapter, and verse about it. I said, when Noah built the ark, and they put the gangplank in, and Noah was climbing the gangplank, somebody said, Noah, did you build a bathroom in the ark? He said, oh, my goodness, we forgot the bathroom. But his last words were, I'd rather be in the stink than in the storm. And we opened the door and we walked in the house of God. And, and, and every one of them agreed, this is the true house of God. But I decided, I decided that preaching was not for me, and so I quit preaching. Until one afternoon, I walked from my house to church and used my screwdriver to get in and went into a little side uh, eight-by-eight Sunday school classroom uh, with a plank board floor, no carpet on it, hot and dusty, no air conditioning, and I went there to pray that afternoon. And I never dreamed that what happened that afternoon would ever happen to me. But about, I got in the spirit of prayer and got in the spirit of intercessions, and I had prayed almost three hours. And I was on my knees, and I was weeping and crying, and all of a sudden I had a vision. Let me tell you something. Your journey has got to start with a vision, praise God. I, I, didn't know, I didn't know what a vision was. I'd never seen a vision before, but I saw the lake of fire had a kind of a black crust on it, and the, the, the pinnacles and the hills was around that big lake of fire, and I was standing on the edge of the cliff, and I was watching, uh, and I saw the white throne of judgment, and I saw the angels uh, take men from the white throne uh, to the edge of, of the cliff, and they would toss him over, and he would break that black crust, uh, screaming and yelling, uh, and he would fall down the, the pits of hell and hell would belt him back out and he would break that crust and he would fall back down and I want that and I, I'm seeing that in a vision and I got in the spirit of agonizing prayer and I said God I'll do anything you want me to do oh God I'll preach if that's what you want me to do oh God I'll be a soul winner if that's what you want me to do 
Amen. And because of that vision, I gave up chemical engineering. I gave up that lifestyle. And I want to tell you today, I have never regretted one minute of giving up everything in order to win souls and be a preacher for Jesus Christ. Every preacher needs a vision of hell and it'll change your ministry. I live with that vision every day of my life. Every time I go to the pulpit and I've been preaching in Wichita for 34 years. I can tell you the times on one hand with fingers left over. But what I did not go to the pulpit unless I was prepared to reach a soul for Jesus Christ. I have taught almost uh, uh, 25,000 home Bible studies. Let me tell you, how do you do that in the course of a lifetime? It's because every time I wake up in the morning, I'm reminded that I have a vision of hell and that men are going to die and they're going to go to hell and they're going to live there for eternity and the preacher and the church and the saints is the only thing that's standing between them and hell. So I decided that I might ought to preach. And uh, you can starve to death when you start out preaching. That is true, isn't it? I said you can starve to death when you start out preaching. And uh, I was having great revivals. And... um, my daddy wasn't a preacher. My mama wasn't a preacher. And nobody knew who I was. And I, I, I had to preach where, I had to preach in these little old bitty churches because I wasn't good enough to preach in some of y'all's churches. I, I, Brother Leroy Skipper was here last night and he came up and he hugged me. And he, he, I, I, he passed a little bitty church on the outskirts of Ruston, a little independent church. On the outskirts of Ruston, and uh, and uh, and I didn't qualify to even testify in the United Pentecostal Church. I never, I, I still hadn't got holy enough to preach in the United Pentecostal Church yet. But I'm trying. I'm, I'm struggling to be holy, and uh, and so I would sneak over to that little independent church, and he let me preach. Praise God in practice on them. Praise oh, that poor. Can you imagine that poor congregation? Uh, having somebody trying to practice preaching on them. And, and it was just, it was just a, a situation. And so I, I decided to give up everything and start evangelizing. And I'm, I, I made a sum total of $50 a week. Oh, was I more than overpaid. <laughs> Amen. I mean, you could draw unemployment for $45 a week, so I was one stage above unemployment. Actually, my daddy said I was unemployed. And uh, I started traveling, and, and everywhere I went, the strange thing is we had revival. Now, I was preaching in, in, in Riverside, California, and the first night I got up in that revival, and I said, all right, folks, we're going to have a hundred-soul revival here. <laughs> 
And not anybody said amen. Because they'd never had a hundred soul revival. And I'm, I'm just a novice preacher. And I certainly, and, and, and I preached about three nights. The first night, there was a hundred microphones sticking up in my face. And the second night, there was three microphones sticking up. And the third night, you couldn't buy a microphone. I didn't preach anything worth recording. And a big-nosed Italian guy, never will forget, he walked up to me and said, uh, uh, you said we're going to have a hundred-soul revival. He said, I don't know how we're going to do this because you can't even preach. <laughs> and why do we equate revival with good preaching? I'm preaching to you, ladies and gentlemen. Amen. Preaching and revival are not necessarily synonymous. It's what's in the heart of the evangelist, in the heart of the pastor, and in the heart of that congregation. Five weeks later, we had 98 prayed through the Holy Ghost with 60 more in the altar. And that big-nosed Italian guy came up and he said, I believe we're going to have 100 souls get the Holy Ghost. I said, why didn't you believe that five weeks ago? And everywhere I went, I had revival, but they were still underpaying me. I was still getting $50 a week. And I didn't know that they was underpaying me. That's the horrible part about it. I know when I'm underpaid now, buddy. You better know I know when I'm underpaid. Amen. And uh, I was preaching in the, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, I went there for one two-week revival. And now the revival has stretched into a 26-week revival. We've had over 260 people receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. We was having three services a week, uh, and we was knocking doors four nights a week, uh, and people was coming out. It was just an unbelievable move of God. And they were still paying me $50 a week. And you know what? You don't pay your car insurance on $50 a week, and you can't buy gasoline for $50 a week, and you can't pay a $94 car payment on $50 a week. And so I'm between the rock and the hard place. The first thing that happened, my insurance company called and said, uh, Brother Cornwell, uh, I'm sorry, but we have not received your insurance payment, and your insurance has lapsed. Now, that would have been fine, except they called my dad before they called me. And my dad said, you, got, you lost your insurance, boy. Why don't you come home and get a job and act like a normal person? I'm 2,500 miles away from home. I don't have enough gas to get home. <laughs> and my dad said, you park that car and don't you drive that car until you get your insurance on it. And the church was about three miles from the preacher's home where I was staying. And so I had to walk to church every day to pray because I couldn't drive my car. My wife and I was, was collecting Coca-Cola bottles and taking them to Lucky's, that's, that's a grocery store, and selling Coca-Cola bottles to put Similac milk in my baby's bottle. I'm a chemical engineer. 
I got 31 hours for uh, excuse me, uh, 31 hours above that in biomedical engineering. I gave all that up. But you know, it was looking pretty enticing. And so uh, I couldn't drive my car. We were selling Coca-Cola bottles and putting Similac in my baby's bottle. We were broker skunks. And the plant manager from International Paper Company called me and said, Morel, we want you to come back to work for us. I'd worked on an air pollution and water pollution project for them, and they wanted me to come back and head up a project. And they said, I said, well, okay. I said, when do you want me to come? He said, we'll ship everything from California back to the plant, and we need you here Monday morning to go to work. And you talk about temptation. I said, okay. I said, would you, uh, I said, would you give me one week to decide? He said, okay, we'll call you back at noon on Friday, and we need an answer. And I made a vow. I, I took an army blanket, wrapped around me, went in the garage, and the, the pastor had a desk in that garage, and I crawled up under that desk. It was co cold, and it had a little six-inch space heater, and I put in front of that desk, and I stayed in that desk, uh, underneath that desk for six hours a day praying and begging God, Lord, I don't know what to do. I can't live. I don't have any money. I can't drive my car. I can't feed my own baby. I got to have your help, and Lord, I know I'm getting $50 a week but I can't make a living on $50 a week. What am I going to do, God? You know, sometimes God putting you in a difficult situation is the best thing that ever happened to you. Especially if you won't co-counsel it out and get on your knees and pray until God gives you an answer. Ladies and gentlemen, we've lost the art of getting our answers from God. I'm preaching to a preacher here. I wish I knew you where you're sitting. You need an answer from God. I prayed six hours Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. And uh, I was praying uh, a Friday. I said, God, today if I don't get an answer. When a man calls me, I'm going to say, yes, I'll go back to work. And I'll give up this preaching. At a quarter to 12, at a quarter to 12, a, a, a man called me from Alexandria right here, Alexandria, Louisiana. He was at the Guaranteed Bank in downtown Alexandria, and he walked out of the bank, and I needed $180 to pay my, my insurance payment with, and I didn't have no money. And he walked out uh, of the bank, and God said, go back in. He turned around, went back in, walked up the counter, and she said, can I help you again? She said, well, I, I don't know. He said, it's kind of strange, uh, but does Morel Cornwell have an account here? Huh. And uh, she said, well, I don't know. She got on her little computer and pulled up my name and said, yes, he has an account here. And he sat down, or he stood there, and he wrote out a check for $180 and put in my checking account. And he called me and he said, uh, Brother Cohen, I called your father and they told me how to get a hold of you. And he said, I want you to know that I, I was at Guaranteed Bank and found out you had an account there. I just put $180 in your account. All of a sudden, I had a vision of God again. All of a sudden, I saw the heavens open, and I saw the mightiest revivals I've ever seen in my life. Ladies and gentlemen, 
I came within 15 minutes of, of dropping out of the ministry. I came within 15 minutes of, of saying I'll never preach again. I came within 15 minutes of, of it. But thank God I prayed until God gave a vision. Please don't let me hurt your feelings. But some of us are stuck on running 50 and 75 and 100 and 150 and 200 and 300 and 400. I'm going to tell you what, we need a fresh vision. Our churches need to double. I am a firm believer. We're in a three-year recession. And don't tell me some of y'all are not hurting because I know you're hurting. I feel your wounds. I feel your blood. I know you're hurting. But let me tell you something. Our God has the finances. I said our God will make provisions. I'm getting ready to close here. I was preaching a revival in Yuba City, California. And uh, I had gotten to a place where I would preach one revival for pay. And then the next revival, I would donate to a home missions church. And uh, I, I would let, I'd let them pay me in one church, and I would donate the revival. I would pay the pastor a salary while I was there. I would pay his utilities, and I would pay for all the expenses of the revival, and I would leave without an offering, and, uh, and then I'd go preach another revival for pay. And I, I was scheduled to, 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 to preach a a home mission church in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, over 1,800 miles from San, Sacramento to Tulsa. And the thing is, we didn't have a lot of money. So my wife and I, we drove straight through from Sacramento all the way to Tulsa. Uh, we, we couldn't stop for a hotel because we didn't have money for a hotel. We had to donate this revival. And uh, the, the, the home mission church was a little house church uh, uh, in, in, uh, uh, in a neighborhood uh, surrounded by a huge 40-acre uh, uh, mowed field. And there was a mobile home right in the middle of that, 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 that mowed field that they put us in. And uh, we started having a revival. And uh, so I told him, I said, now, I, 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 don't take no offering from me. I, we, I'm donating this revival. I'm going to give you an income while you, I'm here. And uh, he said, nope. He said, well, I, I got to pay you something. I said, no, this is my vow to God. And finally, we got to Oregon, and we compromised. I said, okay, if you'll put those two wicker baskets on the altar, not, not mention anything about an offering, uh, I, I'll preach, and you cannot take an offering. If somebody decides to put something in the plate, I'll take whatever comes in as long as you don't mention it. He said, that's agreed. And so on Sunday night, on Sunday night, uh, I looked at the offering plate, being an evangelist as I was. <laughs> there were three or four one-dollar bills in those two wicker baskets. And so we left out of the church. We locked up the door, and we went to McDonald's, and we ate a cheeseburger and a small Coke. And uh, we got back to the church, and he said, let me get the offering baskets for you. So we opened the door turned the lights on, walked in, and both wicker baskets were stacked up with money. <laughs> I wanted to remind him of our agreement that I would get whatever come in the basket. <laughs> both bas It wasn't one lump sum. It was dollars folded all different ways and, and, and 20s and 50s and 1s and 5s and 10s and, and it was just stacked up. And, and I stood there with my and he stood there with, 
I said, where'd this money come from? He said, I don't know. I locked the church door. I said, what do we do with it? He said, I think you ought to count it. So we poured it out on the floor and we counted it. It was about $1,400. I had never been paid that much in my life. I didn't know there was that much money in the world. And so I counted out $700 and gave to him, and I pocketed the other $700. So the next week, he said, let's go another week. I said, let's go another week. We went another week. And Sunday night rolled around. We looked, we looked into the wicker baskets. And there was just two or three $1 bills in the wicker baskets. We walked out and we locked the church door. We got in our car. We speeded to McDonald's. We woofed down a Big Mac and a large fry and a big Coke. We speeded back to the church. We unlocked the door, flipped the lights on, and both baskets were stacked up. Stacked up. We counted out. I gave him half. I took half. I said, I think we ought to go a third week. <laughs> Who wants to go back preaching for 50 bucks a week when God's paying you $700 a week? I'm not out for your money, but it takes money to keep me out. Third week rolled around. And I, I preached. Sunday night, we looked into the basket. We shook the baskets. We licked the baskets. We speeded to McDonald's. We didn't eat half of our food till we speeded back. You guessed it. We walked in, and the third time, the plates were stacked high. That, that week, the house trailer was in the middle of the field, had no skirting on it. And a 70-foot-long house trailer, there was a door in the middle of the trailer in the side. And uh, the, we heard a knock on the door. And uh, my wife and I, we opened the door, and there was a little guy standing there about 5 foot 9, maybe 5 foot 8 and a half. He had a dark charcoal suit on, real plain had a little narrow black tie on. He had some black shoes on that they didn't have a spit shine. They didn't look like they had any kind of shine on it. He had gray hair, and uh, he was very polite. And he said, are you Morel Cornwell? And I said, I am. He said, I have a gift for you. And uh, he's standing on the ground uh, on the little the, uh, the little. Trailer house steps there. There was no skirting. And uh, he said he held out a brown paper bag, a grocery bag. And it was rolled over. He said, I have this gift for you. He handed me that brown paper bag. And uh, I turned and handed it to Sister Cornwell and turned back. How long did that take? Maybe one second, a half a second. Turn. And the guy had disappeared. And my wife burst into tears, and I ran down the steps. 
It, it was in the middle of a 30-acre field, no trees, no bushes, nothing. And he wasn't under the trailer. He wasn't behind the trailer. He, was, he, just, he just, poof, he was gone. And, and, and Sister Cornwell is standing there holding that, that brown paper bag, and she's shaking all over, and she's crying. She said, oh, my God, who was he? What was what, what, what he and, and, and I was completely unnerved by it. And I said, well, what's in the bag? I, th- I, th- I thought it was a bomb or something. <laughs> and, and she unrolled the brown paper bag, and wrapped, there was something wrapped in white paper. And, and we cut the, the little tab off of it and opened up, and there was two porterhouse steaks. Now, you have to understand, folks, I ain't never eaten a steak in my life. We wasn't raised on steak. We was raised on stolen watermelons and chicken. The bone fragments, whoever this dude was, had just hacked it off of a cow. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't grocery store perfect. I mean, the bone fragments was all over the, the steak. And uh, she said, what do we do with them? I said, I think we're supposed to cook them. She looked under the, under the sink and found a cast iron skillet. And uh, she cooked the two steaks on on, a, on a paper plates and we didn't have no salad, no tomatoes and no lettuce and no, no dressing and didn't have no baked potatoes. All we had was two steaks. And we cut those steaks and, and, and we're still weeping and shaking from the guy disappearing and I ate that steak. And I have, I've been to Argentina, I've been to Brazil, I've been to Europe, I've been to Asia. I've been all over the United States of America. I've eaten everywhere from, from Bonanza Steakhouse to Ruth Chris. Everywhere you, I've been trying to find that steak again. I can't find a steak that tasted like that one again. And I, I thought it had such a unique flavor and a unique taste to it. I thought, well, I don't understand what's going on here. But every time Sister Cole and I have faced a great financial crisis in our life, the taste of that steak comes back to my mouth. And every time I taste that steak, I say, uh-oh, God's supposed to do something. And then God starts pouring on the finance again. Let me tell you something. God has provision. I'm going to tell you something. I feel the taste of, of that steak in my mouth right now. God is fixing to do something for this Louisiana district like you've never had done before. My God, the Holy Ghost is falling in this place. We need a fresh vision of God's provision. I'm not here to be used of the gifts or anything like that, but there's somebody in this room right now that you're going through one of the greatest financial crises of your life. I hear I got a word for you. My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. I'm almost finished. We was building our building in Wichita, Kansas. 
and, and, and we, we absolutely went broke three times building that building, and we finally got enough money to, to, to get into the building, and, uh, and we had a $100,000 balloon payment due in 12 months. That's how the bank arranged it. We had to pay our note, plus we had to come up with that extra $100,000 at the end of the year. And so we set aside money every month to take care of that $100,000 that we had to pay at the end of the year. And one month before the note was due, the banker called me and said, Reverend, we need you to come see us. So I went down and he said, look, he said, the bank board has met and your, your loan is so big. He said, we, we're going to have some more, we got to have some more balloon payment than 100000 I said, how much more you got to have? He said, we got to have 150000 I said, but, but we agreed on 100000 He said, I know it, but the board says your note is just so big, you've you got to have that extra $50,000. I said, why didn't you tell me this a, a, a year ago? Why would you wait to the last minute to tell me? And so I went home, and I told my wife, and I was scared and didn't know what to do. So I went to my congregation. I said, I, I hate to tell you this. I said, I done begged and borrowed and stole everything I can beg, borrow, and steal. And I said, we got to have $50,000 extra dollars. And so we took up pledges that was due in one month. And we, got, we, we took up uh, pledges, exactly $50,000 more. Dollars. And uh, every church has got this kind of people, okay? And, 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 and I'm, I'm, I'm telling you this because I'm preaching to those people in your congregations that's like this. Okay? And uh, so that night, uh, Sunday night, we took the pledges up. And, uh, and uh, I walked out the door about 11 o'clock, shut all the doors, locked everything up, walked to my truck. And uh, this big, tall guy walked up to me and he said, uh, uh, hey, preach. I said, yeah. He said, you know, I made a pledge. I said, yes, you, you, you did. You, you pledged $3,000. I knew. I, I got it all calculated. He said, I just want you to know I'm not paying my pledge. I said, why would you wait till after church to tell me? He said, I just want to watch you squirm and wiggle. Everybody's got those kind of stingy guts. Those rebels that God's going to burn in the lowest hell. So I'm sitting there in my truck, and, I, and my heart just sunk because I got to go to the church, the, next, the bank the next morning, $3,000 short of what we owed. And I'm sitting in that truck. All of a sudden, I start eating that steak again. It's 11 o'clock at night, and I'm sitting there, and I'm weeping. And uh, the lights come up through our parking lot, drive up, and an elderly grandmother in her house coat, in her pink, big old pink roll curlers. <laughs> I still remember the old house shoes she had on was ragged. And she got out of the car, and I shook. I said, what are you doing here? She said, the Lord woke me up. I said, yeah? I said, yeah, the Lord spoke to me and said my pastor was crying on the parking lot. I said, do what? Your pastor's crying on the parking lot? She said, yes, and said, he told me to give you something. And, and she handed me a check for $3,000. I said, I knew this, I knew this widow woman, this older lady, this grandmother, old woman. 
I said, where did you get $3,000 from? She said, it's my life savings. But the Lord said, you needed it. I said, I had to bring it to you tonight. I said, give me that check. <laughs> I grabbed that check. I said, give me your hand. And I raised her hand towards heaven. I lifted that check up. I said, God, record that check right now. Record that check. I said, now God, record that check. And I put it back in her hand. I said, if God can wake up a grandmother at midnight and tell her that her pastor's crying on the parking lot at midnight, my God can supply every need according to his riches and glory. We keep our doors locked until 10 o'clock on Monday morning. And starting at 5 o'clock the next morning, people started coming in the church and putting little brown envelopes on the door with notes in them saying, I, I, I just feel like I need to give 10 more dollars. I need to give 20 more dollars. I need to give 50 more dollars. And by the time we got the tithe and offerings counted at 10 o'clock, 3,030 more dollars had come under that door. Let me tell you something. My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. Let's raise our hands and praise God. Oh, hallelujah. Somebody has a need that God is going to give you a fresh vision for. Oh, God. 